0: I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to three um, different chapters, Isaiah 54, Romans 5, and 2 Corinthians 5. We uh, have been teaching for a couple of weeks on a series that we've entitled Righteousness, or a series about righteousness. And um, I want to share some things with you this morning that, uh, that I trust will be a blessing to you. I know it will be a blessing to you if your eyes are open to see you what the Bible's really saying and your ears open to hear it. Righteousness is a difficult um, subject. Shouldn't be, but it's a difficult subject because the natural man, our flesh, even our unrenewed minds, typically associate righteousness with behavior. And nowhere does the Bible talk about righteousness in connection with behavior. Nowhere. Somebody defined uh, righteousness as the ability to stand before God without a sense of guilt or condemnation. That's true. But I don't like that definition. And the reason I don't like that definition is because the key phrases that people lock in on is the part of without sin, without guilt or condemnation. And so often when we stand before God, we do feel condemned. Not coming from him, but because we listen to the lies of the devil We do feel our inferiority. We do feel the the means and the measures whereby we don't live up to what we know the Bible says we should. And so that causes many people to to discount the righteousness that the Bible says belongs to us already. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 says that Christ has made unto us wisdom. That means it's already there. It's already yours. You can't do anything about it. It's there. It took place when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that's the way it's always going to be. Now, I know that when you say things like that, sometimes people will say, Well, yeah, but what about Hebrews 6? Hebrews 6 talks about an extreme condition. In my opinion, very, very rare case. Where someone, after walking with God and growing spiritually to a a heightened degree of maturity chooses to give up their salvation. I'm not talking to people that are that are focused on that. I'm talking to people that love God. I don't know about you, but I don't want out of the family of God. I never will want out of the family of God. And so when I make an absolute statement like I just did about there's nothing you can do about it, I'm talking about to those who want to be in the family of God and want to serve him and want to please him. Amen. Too many times people focus on the extreme cases and they miss the import. The devil uses that as a tool to rob them of what belongs to them now. So we'll start in Isaiah chapter 54. Beginning in verse 14, it says, In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. And from terror, you'll be far from terror too, in other words, for it shall not come near you. Now, the uh, the word righteousness in the in the Hebrew, the word that's translated righteousness in the Hebrew, means rightness. And then Strong's Concordance gives a couple of examples or areas where things are restored or made right before God. It uses as an example justice. It uses as an example virtue, character traits, virtue, and it uses as an example prosperity. But the implication is very simply this. Righteousness is a restoration. It's a return to how things were supposed to be the right way that things were supposed to be. And of course, we know that it's talking about before the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. So it says in righteousness or rightness, you shall be established. Now, the word established means to stand firm or to stand upright. And so it's telling us that righteousness is the foundation of the church righteousness is the foundation of the church is the foundation for every person that's in the family of god yet if we were to ask the question how many of you are righteous in most christian circles you'd have very very few people raise their hands and even if you did find somebody that would raise their hand we were bold enough to say well yeah i believe i am righteous they'd have to add to that but i don't feel like it and feelings have absolutely nothing to do with anything How you feel does not change who you were made to be. In righteousness you shall be established. If the church doesn't understand righteousness, then what kind of foundation does the church have? The Bible just says the foundation of of, uh, the church, our Christian lives, is to be righteousness. Or is righteousness. Yet so few people take advantage of what belongs to them. Notice in verse 17, it says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. That includes yours. If you buy into the devil's lie and accept and or speak condemnation about yourself and about your condition or about your Christian walk, the Bible says that in righteousness, you should condemn that tongue. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. We'll read another two verses over here. Starting in verse 17, it says, For if, literally for since, by one man's offense, talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden, death, spiritual death, reigned by one, much more shall they which receive the abundance of grace, that means the finished work of Jesus and all he accomplished for us, Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Notice that he's telling us that righteousness is not only the foundation for the church, foundation for the family of God, but righteousness is also that which causes us to have a place of authority in the earth. Again, I have to remind you that the implication is a restoration The Bible says Jesus said of himself that Jesus uh, came to restore all things unto God by himself, by his sacrifice. The restoration has to be back to the Garden of Eden before man fell. Now, the Bible tells us specifically that Jesus put away sin. He removed it. Now, I know what people think. If if Jesus removes sin, then why do I keep stumbling and falling? Those are two unrelated issues. Jesus put away sin for your sake. It's been done away with. You go to God talking about sins of the past. He didn't know what you're talking about. They've been put away. They've been put away. So if righteousness is our foundation, which it is, and righteousness is the key to our victory, or the proper use and exercise of authority here in the earth, shouldn't we know something about it? Notice verse 21. Verse 21. It says that as sin has reigned unto death. That was sent from Adam forward. That as sin has reigned unto death. Even so might grace reign through righteousness. Unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Again he brings out the point that the finished work of Jesus. And this gift of righteousness. You can't earn it. But this gift of righteousness is what sets you on high. And what brings victory in every area of life. Finally 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17, it says, therefore, (coughs) excuse me, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, what old things passed away? The unrighteous nature that made us children of the devil. The unrighteous nature that passed upon all men, the spiritual death that passed upon all men. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church and he said the problem with the, the world is not that they're sinners. It's that they're enemies of God. They're spiritually dead. Well, that's what passes away. The Bible tells us that God takes away the stony heart, the spiritually dead man on the inside, and puts a new spirit in us. That's what being born again is. It's being recreated in the likeness and the image of God. Well, what would the likeness and the image of God be if not Righteous. We're restored to that place of union. Now the word righteous in the New Testament, the Greek translates uh, into the the English righteousness, the word that means equity, equity of character, equity of character. Now I don't know about you, but that doesn't mean much to me. But what it's saying and what it's referring to, what it's trying to get across to us is a place of equality. You remember the Bible says in Philippians, To let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's what being made in the likeness and the image of God means. Being made equal with God. Now, that doesn't mean you've got all the power of the universe like God does, but it means you are one with Him in spirit. That was the prayer Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 on the night that He was betrayed and the crucifixion experience began, he prayed that we would be one with him as he was one with the Father. That's why the Bible says we're joint heirs with Christ. There's an equity of character, an equity of spirit. Again, the implication is it's a restoration. It's a bringing back to where we were originally intended to be in the image and nature of God. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Let's keep reading verse 18. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. The word reconciliation means a mutual exchange. That means your spiritual death was traded for Jesus' spiritual life, eternal life. There's a mutual exchange. You lost everything about who you were when Jesus died on the cross, and you gained everything that he is through his resurrection you're not just a sinner saved by grace you were a sinner and you were saved by grace so that now you're the righteousness of god in him and all things are of god who has reconciled us to himself by jesus christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation the good news is the price has already been paid the exchange has already been made nothing for you and i to do except accept the gift To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them or against them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be you reconciled to God. For he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him now if you if we back up and take an overview of the of the new testament particularly one of the issues that paul had the hardest time getting across and one of the things that seems to be the hardest for people to accept is the idea that righteousness is a gift and that you can't earn it because everything about the jewish culture where the church began everything about the jewish culture and and not just the Jews, I think it's a function of natural man. I think it became the, the focus of all mankind when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. But that focus is how we're behaving, the lifestyle that we're living. And you can never find a place in the New Testament where it talks about works of righteousness or the fruits of righteousness where it speaks to behavior. You just can't find it. Paul ministered to the Gentiles the good news of Jesus and invariably over and over again the pattern seemed to be that the Jews would send somebody or rise up against the church, infiltrate the church and then try to impose upon the church some rules or regulations specifically the law of Moses and tell everybody that Jesus is good and we're glad that he died for us and he may be the Christ and he's the Messiah and all that's wonderful but you still got to keep the law of Moses. Well, since Jesus said he came to fulfill the law of Moses... Not to do away with it, but to fulfill it, complete it literally, then what would we need the, the law of Moses for? What would the law of Moses add to us? Not a thing. But people took that truth that Paul preached, and apparently, from some of the things that he wrote to the church, apparently the attitude and the idea of some people was well, if we're saved by grace, and if it's all a gift, and it has nothing to do with our works or our behavior, then it doesn't matter if we sin. We, we won't even try to resist sin because sin is unrelated to the gift of righteousness. Well, Paul tried to correct that. He wrote to the Galatians. He said, I know what you're saying. I know the attitude is if grace abounds more than sin, then shouldn't we sin all the time? And then we can really have the grace of God upon us. And he tried to correct that. We don't know for sure how, how effective or successful he was in that correction. But then James, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, comes along, and James' letter to the church indicates the issues and the degree to which the righteousness of God and the grace of God, the gift of righteousness, was understood in the church because his whole thing was about showing good works because we've been saved. He wrote to the followers of of Jesus, the Jews, the Jewish Christians that were scattered abroad. And he said, what good does it do if you say that you have faith, but then you don't live it in front of others? He said, faith without works is dead. Now, the works he's talking about are not the works of the law. They're not the works of the law of Moses. He's talking about corresponding actions. In other words, he says, you should live what you speak. About believing. You should live what you claim to believe. Now, why would Paul, or I'm sorry, why would James write that if that wasn't a prevalent issue in the early church? So, the bottom line is this, folks. Even after we're born again, even after we're made the righteousness of God, the default position, because of Adam's sin and the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, the default position is to look to ourselves and our success or lack of it in doing things that we think are good and right in order to please God. And the Bible could not be any clearer that that has nothing to do with what's called the gift of righteousness. Look with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. He summarizes, Paul summarizes in verse 20, he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, in other words, keeping the law of Moses, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, I don't know about you folks, but I'm not tempted to keep the law of Moses. I don't have a lamb growing in my backyard for the next (laughs) sacrifice. So why would the Holy Ghost save for us letters that speak to people that were involved in ritual sacrifice, animal sacrifice, as well as the other 630 commandments of the law. Why would he save that for us if it were not an issue for our present day? The issue for us is not the law of Moses, but the issue is still the same thing. There's still the same focus. The focus that began after Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, they hid themselves because they saw their condition and saw how far short they fell or how far short they came. To living up to the righteous nature of God. Ever since then, it seems, natural man's tendency is to look at himself and become self aware. And because man has been spiritually dead, and even now that we're born again, our bodies still have the the experience, residual experience of spiritual death in our flesh. Paul called it this body of death. We still have the same tendency to look at ourselves. And judge whether or not God is pleased with us by our lifestyle or our behavioral choices. So the truth that Paul is preaching to the Romans about not needing to keep the law of Moses is true for us in whatever way the devil tries to make us think that we're falling short. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Let's say it this way: by the actions or behavioral choices of man, no flesh will be justified in the sight of God. That means whether you live or live right or live wrong. it doesn't justify you in God's sight. Now it doesn't say living right doesn't have benefits. It doesn't say that living wrong will have consequences. It doesn't do away with either of those. But it has nothing to do with being justified in the sight of God. It has nothing to do with the gift of righteousness. Not a thing in the world. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without or apart from or separate from the law is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. He says the righteousness of God that is manifested is separate from any works that you can ever do. Now, I keep saying this. I keep coming back to the same point, And that is the implication is a restoration. Jesus came to restore us back to the place with God that Adam had before the fall. The place of restoration. What did God tell Adam in the Garden of Eden? He gave him one commandment. He said you can eat of the fruit of every tree except this one. In the day that you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall surely die. Spiritual death. Notice what he didn't tell him. He didn't say now Adam make sure not to speak unkindly to Eve. Because that will bring death on you in so many ways you can't even count. He did not say, now Adam, make sure to keep the pigs out of the vegetable garden. What instructions, what commandments do we have record of that God told Adam other than don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? None. Why? Why? Surely there were things that God spoke to Adam about the operation of the world. Surely there were things that God had to explain to Adam about the exercise and the use of his authority. Because he had been given dominion over all the works of God's hands. Why is there no record? Why is there no indication of what I would assume would be fantastic question and answer sessions that Adam had with God in the cool of the day when he walked with him in the garden? Why not? Because there's not one action that Adam could take in the whole earth, in the exercise of his authority over the whole earth that would change his nature. Only one. Eating the fruit that was forbidden. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, how does that relate to us? Turn with me over to First John chapter 3. First John, chapter three. Let's start in verse 20. It says, for if our hearts, here's the word sense, since our hearts condemn us. God is greater than our hearts and knoweth all things. In other words. John is starting off with saying, I know how it works with all of us. And that is the devil brings condemnation. He brings condemnation. He wants us to resist our relationship with God or temper our relationship with God or hold back in our relationship with God because of our feelings. Verse 21, he said, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. Paul said, talking about his own struggle, writing about his own situation in Romans chapter 7, about not being able to control the actions of his flesh. He said, I find myself, that is my flesh, doing things that my heart resists or resents. I on the inside, the man on the inside, the man that's been made a new creature in Christ Jesus, the man that received the gift of righteousness, doesn't want to do wrong. But I find in my body the influence, the experience of spiritual death to such a degree that I can't always control my body and make it do what my heart wants it to do. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He said, I thank my God, Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. John seems to be writing along the same lines. He says, no matter how you feel, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. Where is our confidence supposed to come from? Is our confidence supposed to come from the feelings of being right with God? You can't count on those feelings. They're not always going to be there. More often than not, the feelings are going to be telling you that you're not right with God. So where does our confidence come from? Our confidence comes from the knowledge of the truth that it's not our behavior that brings us right standing. It's a gift that was given and will never be rescinded. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Jesus said on one occasion, he said, I always do that which pleases my father. He said, on another occasion, I always do the will of the father. How could Jesus do that? We assume, we the the, the natural man assumes, that Jesus had something different than us. And he did. He didn't have the experience of sin in his body. He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. But he didn't have the experience of spiritual death in his body that we have. That we carry. That's why he had to be born of a virgin. To bypass that. To be the perfect sacrifice. But this is saying because we're in him. Because he died for us. The exchange was made. Spiritual death for spiritual life. Eternal life. Because of that. We can know that God always hears us and that we are always doing those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, again, the natural mind immediately goes to behavior, choices, actions in our life. And the devil's always there to, and quick to be there to tell us how he thinks we've fallen short. But that's not what's to govern us. Beloved if our heart condemn us not. Then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask we receive of him. Because we keep his commandments. And do those things that are pleasing in his sight. You have every right to say just like Jesus said. Because you've been born again. Because you're a child of God. You're a joint heir with Christ. I always do those things that please my father. Because you're not sinning from the inside. The man on the inside resents the sin that's in our flesh. I always do those things that please my father. That's what the Bible is telling us. Because we've been made joint heirs with him. And this is his commandment. Verse 23. This is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ. And love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. Now the problem with that is the word commandment again. We keep his commandments. That, that leads the natural man to think about lifestyle. It, it leads the natural man to think about behavior. And he's not talking about behavior. He just identified what the commandment was. It's similar to what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. By this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have love one toward another. But notice John adds something. He doesn't just say, Love one another as he gave us commandment. What does John know? John knows what the Bible was intended to teach all of us. Over and over and over again, many times, it tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What is the keeping of God's commandment? Well, we know we're supposed to walk in love, but that should be easy enough because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost at the new birth. But notice John adds in there, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, if Abraham is our example, and it was not his lifestyle, there were no commandments to keep. There was no law of Moses given to him. If Abraham is our example, and the Bible tells us again and again and again, that God counted to Abraham righteousness because he believed him, because Abraham believed God. Then that makes faith the sum total of righteousness. Not your actions, not your behavior. And I would remind you that in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham begins by questioning God about his children. You promised me children years ago, still haven't had them. What about that? God shows Abraham all the stars in the sky, takes him out, shows him a starry night. Says, how many stars are there? Abraham says, too many to count. God responds and says, so shall your seed be. That's what Abraham believed. It says in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 15, and Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What about chapter 16? Chapter 16 is where Abraham took Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, and had a child by her. Not his finest hour. And I think we would agree, not just from the consequences, but from what the Bible tells us, that that choice, that behavior, that action was not in line with what God's original plan was. But it didn't negate his righteousness, did it? God didn't appear in chapter 16 after Hagar gets pregnant and says, Abraham, you stupid fool. What have you done? Just last chapter, I counted it to you for righteousness. Because you believed me. Now, because of your actions, your choice, your behavior, everything is messed up. It's not what happened, is it? His behavior, his wrongful action, and it was wrong action, did not negate the righteousness that God had counted to him because of his faith. Same thing's true of Paul. Paul tells us of his experience, his struggle with his flesh in chapter 7 of Romans, as, we, as we've already mentioned. He comes to the place where he says, I can't control my body. I, the man on the inside that's been born again, that has received the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus that he wrote to us about, he says, I can't control my body in every situation, and I feel condemned about it. But it doesn't keep God from using him, does it? Doesn't keep God from making him an apostle and giving him a place of priority and honor in the church. Did it. Now here's the question I've got for you folks. The righteousness of God comes by faith. Which we'll define for this sermon, this purpose. As believing and acting like God's word is true. That's all Abraham did. He believed and acted like God's word is true. Doesn't mean he never missed it. Doesn't mean he conquered sin in every area of his life. It just means that he believed and acted like God's word is true. Well, you've done that, haven't you? Didn't you do that when you made Jesus your Lord? Sure you did. And it wasn't just counted to you for righteousness. You were made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. By the precious blood of Jesus. By the power that's in the blood of Jesus. So here's my question. What sin of yours is greater than the power that's in the blood of Jesus? Now think that through. Because we let our feelings about our own actions and our own lifestyle choices and behavior and so forth. Our own works. We let our feelings about how far short we have fallen... From God's standard. Determine whether or not we come into the throne room of God. Whether or not we believe. Or how strongly we believe. That God hears and answers our prayer. All based on our action. Does that not. Indicate. That we have greater faith in our failures. Than we have in what God's word says. Well, how long are we going to keep doing that? Somebody came to Jesus. I want you to see this. Turn with me over to uh, John chapter 6. Somebody came to Jesus and asked him a question. Let's start in verse 28. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Now, folks, this is the perfect question for the modern-day church. Because the modern-day church is looking for, the modern-day Christian, the average guy, the person that loves God with all their heart, wants to do right. Not somebody that's just using God, trying trying to manipulate him for their own benefit. But people that are sincere and honest before God. They want to know, what can we do so that God will be pleased with us? Notice what Jesus said. What shall we do, Master, that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered in verse 29 and said unto them, This is the work of God that you believe on him who he has sent. I'll say it again in a little different way. The one work of righteousness that we're responsible for under the new covenant is to believe God. Is to have greater faith in him And what the Bible says he has done for us than our own feelings about ourselves. That is the work of God. Notice what the Bible says in John chapter 16 about the work of the Holy Ghost. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, last night with his disciples, he says, beginning in verse 7, John 16, 7, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, what is he saying? He's saying if the Comforter doesn't come, if I don't go away, go to the Father, finish the work of redemption. You can't be born again. You can't have the help and the power of the Holy Ghost. And it's better for you to be born again to have received the gift of righteousness and the help of the Holy Ghost. than it would be for me to stay here on the earth forever and you be here with me. Now, I'm sure they didn't think that was true. I'm sure they would much have preferred that Jesus stayed there with him, them. But that's because they didn't know what was coming. So Jesus said, it's better for you. It's more expedient. It's helpful for you that I go away. But and if I depart, I will send him unto you. Verse 8, and when he has come, here's the work of the Holy Ghost after Jesus was raised from the dead. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. Now the word reprove means convince or convict. He says the, the world, the Holy Ghost will bring conviction upon the world about sin. And of righteousness and of judgment. Now he's going to explain it. He says he's going to convict or convince the world of sin because they believe not on me. Folks there's only one sin that counts with God and that's rejecting Jesus. That's it. Well you've already crossed that hurdle, haven't you? You've already jumped that fence. You don't reject Jesus. You accepted him as your Lord and Savior. You believed on him. Then why in the world should we allow our behavior To keep us away from the one that loved us. He said the Holy Ghost will reprove the world of sin. Because they believe not on me. He'll reprove the world. Convict the world of righteousness. Because I go unto my father. And you see me no more. He'll convict or convince the world of judgment. Because the prince of this world is judged. Now folks. I don't know if you've picked this up when we just read through it we went kind of quickly but the only sin that the holy ghost convicts anybody of is the sin of rejecting jesus and that's the unsaved so that means that the holy ghost does not bring condemnation to you when you miss it when you stumble and fall it's not the holy ghost that brings conviction or condemnation that's your own spirit that's your own heart but notice what the Holy Ghost will do, not concerning the world, but to his family. The Holy Ghost is not going to convict the world of righteousness because they don't know or care about righteousness. The one issue for the world is rejecting Jesus. But he will convict or convince the church of righteousness because he goes to the Father. What does that mean? That means the only thing that God is interested in us As far as works that please him is to believe. Then he says, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Again, that's the work of the Holy Ghost for the church, because Satan's already been judged. Sin in the flesh has already been condemned. It's already been condemned. It doesn't need to be condemned it's already been condemned now folks the point I'm trying to get across to you is this if faith which means believing and acting like what God said is true is what brought Abraham into righteousness or had it counted unto him it wasn't available to him until Jesus was raised from the dead and that example of faith is what we're supposed to follow Then where do we get the notion that what we do, whether good or bad, right or wrong, stand or stumble, affects our relationship with God? Where do we get that? It's not Bible. Yeah, but somebody will say, Pastor Mike, do you mean to say that a Christian that's living in homosexuality is still righteous in the sight of God? they made Jesus the Lord of their lives, yeah. Well, what about the Christians that's in adultery? If they made Jesus the Lord of their lives, they're righteous before him. Does God like the action? No. Does he want to deliver them? Yeah. But does it cost them the relationship with God? No. Now, some people don't like it that way. In the early days of the church. The Jewish Christians didn't like it that way. But that's what the Bible tells us. Where does it say without good works. It's impossible to please God. Nowhere in the New Testament. But Hebrews 11.6. Does say without faith. It's impossible to please God. Faith. Believing and acting like what God said is true is the sum total of righteousness. It's the only measuring stick it has. Which means that unrighteousness or unbelief, excuse me, which means that unbelief is the primary enemy against God. And the reason for that is not because God doesn't like people that are not believers or Christians who refuse to accept the word to be true. It means it's impossible for God's plan and purpose to be accomplished in the presence of unbelief. It takes the individual out of the place where their rights and privileges can be accepted and received. Folks, faith is the issue. It's the only issue. Now, here's my question or another one rather. I've got a lot of them. But here's my question. Is there anybody in here? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to know. Is there anybody in here that under any circumstances or any situation would ever choose to refuse to believe God? I can stand here and say the same thing I expect you to be able to say, and that is, I will never choose not to believe God. Now, I may not be successful in everything because of a lack of knowledge, but from my heart, I always want to believe God. I always want to take advantage of and take hold of whatever Jesus has accomplished for us, whatever he purchased for us. You can say the same thing, can't you? Well, think about what that means. That means you can never, in any circumstance, even if we mess up, even if we fail to believe God, but we do it honestly because we don't know. God doesn't hold against you what you don't know. That means that we can never be in a place where the devil has any foothold to claim that we are unrighteous in any form or any shape or any fashion, ever. See, folks, it really means something when the Bible says we've been made the righteousness of God. It's his righteousness. It's of him. Meaning the only way it can be broken is from his side, not yours. And it never will be. That means we can say with Jesus, we always do those things that please our father. Doesn't mean we never trip and fall. Doesn't mean we never stumble. Doesn't mean we always do things right. It means from the inside of our heart, from the man on the inside, the recreated man on the inside, we always want to do the right thing. That's what counts as righteousness with God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Is this making any sense? Righteousness is a hard thing for me to teach because there are some things that you you don't get by hearing, you get by seeing And there's some things that the Lord has shown me concerning the subject of righteousness that have made a tremendous difference in my relationship with him. But how do you get that across to other people? It wasn't some brand new revelation. It wasn't some eye-opening experience like, wow, I've never heard this, never seen this. I had heard it before, but I didn't really hear it. I was aware of what others said, but I didn't really have the revelation of it on the inside. But once I did, it changed everything. Let's start in verse 24, Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, talking about the uh, earthly temple, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. In other words, it's King James English way of saying Jesus made one sacrifice that was worthy forever. But now once in the end of the world, hath he appeared, notice this phrase, to put away sin. By the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die. But after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. Without sin. Unto salvation. Notice that it said Jesus entered in once into the heavenly holy of holies. However that worked. I don't know exactly what to expect when we get there. But there was an action that Jesus took in heaven that put away sin. He put away sin. Now that doesn't mean you'll never sin. It means as far as you're concerned because you've been made righteous by his blood because our righteousness is of him. It means very simply that sin has been dealt with once and for all. Well, what about when we sin? What about when we stumble and fall? What should we do there? Well, there are some in the body of Christ that teach that even your future sins have been paid for. It's part of the grace teaching so that we never even have to ask God for forgiveness for what we do wrong. Now, folks, i got to tell you, I'm not a theologian, But I've got a brain. Those may be mutually exclusive conditions. I'm not sure. But you know as well as I do that earthly relationships are more easily and better maintained when we're not afraid to and even are quick to Say we're sorry for things that we've done wrong. Why wouldn't we do the same thing with God? First John 1 John nine says. For if we confess our sins. Talking to the church. Some people say this written to the world. Some people say that in the first chapter of John. 1 John is not written to the church. It's written to the world. Well first John 1 John 1.9 says. For if we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word unrighteousness there means unrighteous action, doesn't mean a change in nature. If that were written to the world, the unsaved, then the Holy Ghost would be telling the world that the way to salvation is to confess your sins. And that's not what the New Testament teaches. Romans 10 9 and 10 says, If we believe, That God has raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as Lord, not confess your sins, but confess him as Lord, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So the key to righteousness or the entering into righteousness is not the confession of sin. How would you remember all the sins you committed in your life anyway? Be anything more than just a child. It's got to be written to the church. It's an acknowledgement that as believers, we may stumble and fall. Newsflash, folks God knows you're going to mess up. Does that matter to Him? Not when it comes to righteousness. Does it negate your relationship with God? Does it negate the new nature of the born again believer? No, neither can it. So, the one issue we have if we see that we've done the wrong thing, again, like Paul explained about his own experience in Romans chapter 7, what did Paul learn to do? He learned that there was no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And he confessed his sin and was forgiven for the stumbles and the slips in his life, just like we are. There is no sin, no sin. On the part of the believer. That can change his spiritual nature. And it glorifies God. Maybe more than ever. When in the midst of our stumbles. We stand up and declare that we are the righteousness of God in him. Which is exactly the opposite of what the natural man. Is inclined to do. We stumble and fall. We fall into some kind of sin or temptation or whatever the case is, and we want to hide from God like Adam and Eve did in the, in the Garden of Eden. We want to hide from God for a couple of days, and after a couple of days, we'll get it behind us and then we'll feel better. Well, why do we want to forfeit those couple of days of fellowship? Those couple of days that we look for our feelings to assuage themselves. Or be satisfied. Could be the most important days of our lives. But if instead we stand up and say. Father I missed it. But you know it didn't miss it from my heart. I missed it from the flesh. So I confess that sin. And I declare that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing rubs the devil's nose in it. More than that. Nothing. Shows the defeat of Satan. In greater way than that. That's why Paul wrote to the church. Let us therefore come boldly. To the throne of grace. Because you're just as righteous as Jesus is. God put away Jesus sin nature. After he took upon himself spiritual death. Just as surely as he took away your sin nature. And nothing you can ever do will change that. So, I guess it becomes an easy, easy way to come to a conclusion. Since that's the case, why not enjoy it? Why not enjoy the experience of being eternally righteous? Even when we slip, even when we stumble, even when we fall. Believing God is the sum total of righteousness. Righteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we declare that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We declare that there is nothing in heaven, earth, or hell that can separate us from this wonderful gift that has enabled us to be restored to a place of authority, to be restored to a place of fellowship, and to have been made one with you. We thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he offered his body and his blood so that we might live. And, Father, we recognize that because we're righteous, we are enabled and empowered to do the works of Jesus here on the earth, just like he said we would. We recognize that it's our righteousness that is the foundation for our Christian life and our Christian walk. And you made your righteousness so sure for us that nothing we ever say or nothing we ever do can change it. Eternal life is ours for all of eternity. We bless you, Father. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you For opening our eyes to see ourselves. Even as you see us. In Jesus precious name. Amen.